Welcome to another episode of the Drug Classroom Podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Christopher Maraff, a journalist based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He's written for the Daily Beast, NextCity.org, and The Crime Report. He specifically covered drug prohibition and its effects around the Philadelphia area. Because one of the main topics right now is heroin and opioids and fentanyl, those were some of the main things we talked about. We also discussed why the opioid epidemic is really best viewed as an overdose epidemic. As always, everything TD does is supported exclusively by donations. So if you want to help out, you can go to patreon.com slash the drug classroom and you can find all donation options at the drug slash support. And without further ado, here is Christopher. I'm here with Christopher Maraff. Christopher, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Seth. So I've been following some of your stuff on Twitter for a while, and you're based in Philadelphia. And, and it's interesting when a lot of the coverage of the so-called opioid epidemic is national, and it's not, unless you're in an area that's heavily affected, then sometimes you don't really see the on-the-ground situation. Whereas you're in Philadelphia, and you seem to do a bit of coverage of this, and that's why I wanted to have you on to sort of talk about Philadelphia as a sort of microcosm of America right now. Sure. It's a particularly problematic area in terms of opioid deaths, right? Like the rate in Philadelphia is is even higher than, say, New York City, I, I believe. Um, I don't have that, that those numbers in front of me. But yes, we, we've had overdoses more than double in uh, just the past year. And um, a lot of it is due to fentanyl. Um, and, and I, you know, like just to go back to what you said about Philly being a microcosm is an interesting point because Philly is uh, like some of the other East Coast cities, Baltimore, New York. You know, we've been long time on the heroin supply chain, the trade lines from first Southeast Asia, Colombia, more recently Mexico. So in a way, the opioid problem is certainly the heroin problem is, is not a new thing to Philadelphia or the streets that I, I particularly cover. What has changed is uh, the influx of of synthetics. So some of the market dynamics have changed, and I think that's led to this, this overdose spike. But um, it, it is an interesting place for Philly to be in such, you know, in the spotlight like that, because unlike some of these small counties in rural America that have really been hit by the prescription pill epidemic, you know, we've always had sort of a thriving heroin market here. Well, I don't, not always, for the past 30 years, it's been in the same place it is today. And so it's kind of interesting to see how the larger dynamics that play throughout the U.S. have affected an established market rather than one that sort of sprung up in response to the uh, prescription issue. And when did the market in Philadelphia start to be affected by the fentanyl series? You know, I should have had these papers in front of me, but we started seeing a spike in overdoses I guess a couple of years ago, and it really took off in 2016. I mean, in, uh, in across the state, there were more than 4,000. The vast majority of those were due to the mixture of fentanyl and, and heroin. So at some point over the past few years is when fentanyl started sort of infiltrating the established heroin supply lines here. Uh, it, it had an immediate effect on both the purity and the, uh, the price as well, price of heroin. Has been going has gone down from a ten dollar bag to a five dollar bag as the purity has increased. So I think that's an interesting commentary on the effectiveness of supply side interventions or the war on drugs. We have a stronger, more deadly product at a cheaper price. So I'm trying to sort of 
get a sense of how that dynamic played out. Sort of everybody's aware now that there's a particularly potent opioid which can cause death at a very low dose and it's impacting the heroin market, but how do users respond because they're buying from a market which is heavily tainted? I mean, it always has adulterant issues, but the newer issue with fentanyl is particularly concerning. And how do users navigate this this market because they could be buying something that is is likely to kill them? Right, right. So, yeah, Philadelphia still has open air street markets, unlike New York, which I uh, you know has has sort of retreated due to, uh, uh, you know, a, a strong police presence, I think, Bronx and places like that to uh, phone connections and stuff. You know, Philadelphia is, is a city, I believe, like Baltimore, that still has a thriving open-air drug market. So, you know, users tend to be clustered uh, in, in a certain area, uh, a radius, and and most of what I've seen is, is just sort of word-of-mouth type farm reduction. I mean, people know or think they know, tend to know sometimes what is the synthetic, what is you know, safe to use, what is not safe to use. That's not universal. Obviously, people are dying. But um, most of what I see is like a word of mouth kind of thing, you know, and, and the reaction has been generally negative to fentanyl, you know, because fentanyl is a very short acting opioid for uh, this average street addict that has to hustle for every six, not a very efficient way to go. So to the extent that people know that it's out there, they they look for, you know, a bag that's going to hold them, which and, and most of them are, are mixed heroin and fentanyl. I, I've, been, I've been doing testing and um, finding a little bit more recently in certain areas that are, that are fentanyl without any opioid, uh, any morphine derivatives in it. But um, for the most part, it's like a word of mouth thing, you know, and, and, and I find that people like to have, you know, there is a, there has been an effort among some users to seek out bags that have, that they call diesel, you know, where the, where the real dope is, because it has more legs. It'll hold them longer. But then some people are now getting high tolerances and they're getting accustomed to the fentanyl rush. And um, that's sort of changing both the the uh, tolerance of, of a lot of users out there, which is going to make treatment harder on the other side as they start to come off. I've, I've spoken to users that can no longer really use non-synthetic. You know, they, they, they have to use fentanyl because uh, heroin just isn't strong enough anymore. And that's a troubling thing. So it creates even more difficult dependencies and makes everything with treatment even more difficult. I'm sure it varies by region to some degree, but why did fentanyl pop out of seemingly nowhere? It wasn't on the public's radar only a few years ago, and now it's everywhere. How did that happen? I mean, what market forces appear to, whether it's national or in Philadelphia, what market forces actually led to this becoming an issue? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of lifting the cover on that a bit. Certainly, we had a large increase in the number of people being prescribed prescription opioids for a number of different reasons, some of them socioeconomic, some of them pharmaceutical capitalism. And, you know, we can discuss that further on if you'd like. I think that what happened was there was this reaction to that from law enforcement. It started in, you know, Florida with the crackdown on the pill mills there. And if you look sort of at the timeline of that, around 2012, when the DEA began really this operation to sort of stop legitimate prescription diversion, it's timed. You can look at charts. Uh, I have one on my Twitter page right now that will show a spike in fentanyl. So you saw market forces adapting to that because fentanyl has always been, it's an old drug. You know, it's, it's not, it's not like something new, a new synthetic. It's been out there. There have been minor spikes over the years. In 2006, we had a spate of overdoses here, but once there was that sort of 
demand that was being cut off, in my opinion, in an improper way from what were termed pill mills, you know, it left this, this void in the market. There are other forces at work in terms of supply. One thing is that Colombia began reducing its opium production. And, and, and so her- the heroin trade shifted more towards Mexico. And Mexico has a, they've had a history of producing illicit fentanyl. They also have established, long established illicit market supply lines throughout the country. Then the, there was some innovation in the heroin that they produced from black tar to powdered heroin, which is more, um, it can be mixed much easier with fentanyl. So those things all kind of, I think, like came together in a perfect storm. So you had these supply side interventions leaving a lot of people in a lurch and, and sort of look, seeking out street markets. And you had this shift in the production line where there was sort of this, you know, a surge of, it, of what would be called black market innovation to, to fill a demand that was unmet at a cheaper price. It all came together into where we are today. So you had these the market changing in terms of providing a less pure or different kinds of adulterants and heroin, and then at the same time you have these opioid prescriptions increasing, and at least some connection, it's arguable what connection there is between legitimate opioid prescribing and then illicit use, but there is some connection, even if it's just because of having more opioids in medicine cabinets and then more people diverting them and then you get people into opioid use. So these things you're saying basically came together at the worst time so that people were entering the heroin market when the heroin market is even more dangerous than it would have been 10 or 15 years ago. Right. So, I mean, you know, you had, this is from talking to academics and people that know more about this than me. So um, I should give lots of people credit that I don't have time to do right now. But from what I understand, you know, as Colombia started making sort of peace deals with FARC and more land became under government control down there, poppy production has just kind of really dropped there. And once Mexico kind of really got into the game in terms of a big player in heroin, which was not something that they did predominantly in the past, it really was a game changer. Between that and, like you said, I mean, it, no matter what side of the fence you're on, you know, like I, I try to be a pragmatist, which is, you know, you, you can't really deny that the crackdown on pill mills led people to more heroin. It's just common sense, um, or more fentanyl, as the case may be. And uh, counterfeit pills was big in the beginning. But yes, also, I would accept that inappropriate prescribing and diversion had certainly created a larger population of users. And, you know, like I said, when you put all that together, it was like sort of a perfect storm for where we are today. And I think that a lot of buyers were sort of experimenting with this over the past few years. And fentanyl is obviously a very powerful drug. It can't be mixed in the way you would mix a cake. I mean, it has to be very carefully prepared. I think a lot of the overdoses that we saw in this initial spike were due to sort of a naivete among the suppliers in what they were getting, what they were putting out. It's kind of like a, um, a market upheaval, so to speak, that I think over time, you know, a number of, this could play out a number of different ways. But um, as I have said in other places, killing your customers is not a long-term, a very good viable long-term business plan. So I think that as dealers begin to work with fentanyl in a different way, we may see this sort of level out. They're going to learn how to use it properly, how to mix it properly. Users are going to be more careful about what they're using. I think when this initial thing hit, people didn't even know what they were getting. Even people that were in management on the dealer side, weren't really aware all the time what was in the package they were getting. So I think that there's information is important. So part of my work is kind of like talking to people on the street, talking to users, talking to dealers, trying to find out what they know and uh, keeping them informed of 
some of the dynamics that they may be, you know, that might be invisible to them. Is there any data on, say, in Philly for the purity range in the heroin market? So the likelihood that somebody will have 20% heroin and then 80% fentanyl, but then it, it switches or something. And, and then you get people getting used to certain doses and suddenly those doses kill them from another batch. Do we have an idea of how big that range is for how pure or not pure in a given area uh, the heroin could be? I think that the data on that is probably pretty limited. I think the average purity of, of a heroin product in, in the past maybe ranged from like around the 30 to 40, 50% range. And I think for one thing, there's now there's different derivatives of fentanyl and, and there's really only just begun an effort on the law enforcement side to sort of have like a, a fentanyl signature program, sort of like the way that they've been studying heroin for quite some time to, to sort of understand those metrics a little bit better. You know, in the beginning, from a toxicology perspective, you know, medical examiners didn't even really know what they were dealing with. They're starting to get more seizure data, and that may become known. But fentanyl is a, a tricky, tricky drug because, like I said, you can get what they call hot spots in a batch. So you, a, a one particular bag with just a little tiny bit more, if it's not mixed properly, could be fatal, where the rest of the bundle isn't. So it has a lot to do with potency, the potency of the drug in terms of the quantity. Of it. When I do testing, I, I have very limited parameters. I can only tell if something has opioids in it and fentanyl and about 10 analogs of fentanyl. So it's really not very useful outside of harm reduction. But I imagine that there will be, and that law enforcement especially, is working on ways of tracking that better. And is there any kind of drug checking? I mean, you see it in other markets for, say, MDMA. It's become common, although it's a different demographic. Is there anything like that for heroin, for harm reduction measures to test drugs and put out warnings or anything about specific batches that may be problematic? That's a, that's a good question. And, and, and yes, there is an effort to do so. There was certainly there was an effort in Canada, and that's trickled down to New York, where I, I know some harm reductionists that are trying to implement, you know, sort of strip testing, you know, that can at least tell you if you what you have has fentanyl and it's the same strips I use. In a way, that, that all has to do with the need, you know, we can loop that into the need for supervised injection facilities. And, and, that, and why I say that is because you're dealing with a population that is on the move, that is transient, that has to use furtively and quickly. So unlike MDMA, which I think targets, like you said, a different demographic, there aren't very many heroin users that are going to spend the time, the little time that they have to get a shot, and they, they may be even sick, to sort of do that themselves. Ideally, it's a word of mouth thing. Like I said, um, if I when I go out on the street, if I've tested something and I know the stamp and I, I came back all fentanyl without you know heroin in it, I, I will certainly make it a point to mention that to people that I see that are users. But right now, it's, it's largely a word of mouth thing. I don't think anybody has really figured out how to how to apply that level of harm reduction at the at the street user level. Now, if you could, as a marketing tool, now that there are certainly suppliers and dealers could apply that. And I, I know of at least one stamp here in Philadelphia that, as a marketing tool, you know, puts itself out there as being heroin that's unadulterated with fentanyl. And in my testing of those bags, that has played out to be the case. So. I believe that somebody in their, you know, in their set is, is doing some sort of analysis of the product that they're getting before they put it out on the street. And ideally, that's where you would want to have this done. There's been a little bit of success in New York. I know somebody that's managed to get a couple of dealers to test their product before they bagged it up. But once it gets down to the individual user, without supervised injection facilities or places where 
people can feel safe while they use and have a little bit of leisure time to even take a notice of what it is they're using, I don't think that that's going to be a very viable solution. In the case of sellers actually putting out products that may be safer or more reliable because of higher purity, do those also cost more? And then are therefore, you know, some people would actually continue to use the worse market if they do, if these purer products cost more. Is there a difference or because you were talking about the price change for heroin that it's come down in those cases, like the example that you brought up, does that heroin cost more? Yeah, as a matter of fact, that that particular one is a $10 bag um, as opposed to the $5 bag that are mostly now pretty much everywhere in Philly. There's a, there's a few corners that are still $10. And as far as I know, that's the only one I've found personally that consistently tested negative for fentanyl. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's a good question, you know, because heroin is not a, not a floating commodity that where suppliers will shift the price. Even marijuana for a long time has been, there have been different prices for different qualities. That's kind of an established practice in the, in the illicit marijuana market. But for the most part, a bag of heroin is a bag of heroin and, and dealers compete on the quality of their product, you know, the, the potency of it. But yeah, that, that's an interesting dynamic that has sort of happened with this whole influx of fentanyl is, is that if you trusted this particular place or that particular place and you and you were sort of an old time heroin user and you didn't want to mess with synthetics, you know, I mean, you could conceivably pay a little bit more to get something that is reliable. But we're dealing with very tenuous black markets that are subject to shift at, at any time. I mean, new players come out, new corners pop up, the, you know, they'll shut down a user spot and, and that'll um, divert dealers to other places. So as long as there's that element of an unregulated black market aspect to it, you're never, there's never really going to be true market dynamic that can sort of allow people to consumers, let's say, to um, apply consumer pressure, demand pressure to the market to get what they want. I mean, that's just not the way black markets work. So that's a long answer to your question. But yes, I think that Ironically, the more safe you want to be, the, the, the more you'd have to pay. Um, and if you're getting some $5 bag from some new set that just pops up, you don't know what's in there. And I, I think users think they know generally that, you know, they'll favor a certain brand for a little bit. But um, like I said, these corners shift, people get arrested, new supplies come in, and the, a bag that was fine one day could kill you the next. Or even with fentanyl, you know, one bag in a bundle could be the deadly one. So it's a really, it's a really dangerous drug. It's, it's very easy to make, very potent. There's a lot of analogs. There's a lot of ways it can be manipulated. That makes it a very unique substance that came in to fill this market demand. And $10 is a big difference for a lot of these consumers from, say, five. So you could have probably a situation where the most vulnerable people are forced to stay at the worst part of the market. They can't afford to potentially find a better source because they don't have the money to work with Anyways, I would I would imagine that might be an issue. Mm -hmm. The most vulnerable people are the ones also being most likely exposed to massive purity changes in fentanyl. And yeah, and, and actually, it's, it's funny you should bring that up. There's a couple of points I'll make around that. The word on the street or that I've heard from sources is that one of the reasons this particular brand that I'm that I was speaking of kept their heroin unadulterated was that a lot of their people, a lot of their dealers and, you know, were users too. And they, and they kind of, it was kind of like, it was also for themselves to sort of keep the product what they wanted it to be. So there's like that aspect of it, the, the very marginalized 
user is not really going to have any say over what's in the supply, right? Another interesting dynamic is like the, this idea of a $5 bag is so new kind of that I still talk to users that sort of describe their use patterns in the old way. So like, like a user will describe using three dimes, but they were all nickel bags, but they, they, they still kind of quantify it in a way in the, the old economy of $10 bags, you know? So the question is whether are they, are they actually using more or are they using less? The bags are smaller. They, they maybe use, you know, instead of using two, two $10 bags, they might be shooting four or $5 bags. So it's not really clear to me yet whether or not it's actually led to a cheaper product in the end run for the consumer. They may just be using more. And, and certainly once their, their habits become, you know, acclimated to this higher potency, it, it's all, you know, they're going to have to keep upping their dose of the fentanyl just to be well, and, and uh, it just doesn't keep them well long enough. The policy responses to this supposed opioid epidemic, and that's probably not a good term for it, but it's one that people use. The responses around the country have been all over the place. You've had places that want to, or at least individuals in certain towns and cities that want to, say, restrict access to naloxone. But then you have on the other side, drug decriminalization or injection facilities. What is the political climate in Philly like for responding to this? Is it moving in a progressive direction or is there kind of a crackdown mentality? Yeah, so uh, to your first point, you're right. I find the term opioid epidemic to be rather useless. I mean, what, what, what you have is an overdose epidemic. You know, it's kind of like calling... Um, drinking and driving a car epidemic. Like, you know, you, people on opioids do not have to die. That is established. Um, it's one of the only dependencies that has proven substitution therapy effectiveness. You can keep people stabilized without dying. So it, what we are experiencing is, is an overdose epidemic. And I, I try to use that term as much as possible. As to the, the political climate here in Philadelphia, it's actually trending in a very positive direction. We have a district attorney's race coming up in November, and both candidates now have, have said they would support supervised injection. We have an opioid task force that just put out a review. Um, they met, I guess, at the beginning of the year, they put out their first, uh, their final recommendations, and they've reviewed them. They just put out a report yesterday. They are exploring supervised injection. They're exploring more effective and progressive treatment approaches. And we, we do have, unfortunately, limited harm reduction at the street level a bit. We have just one very long established harm reduction group here called Prevention Point Philadelphia that does a great job, but they, um, they're overwhelmed. We certainly have a, a, a naloxone shortage. Naloxone does make it to the street, but not in the numbers that it should. I've spent some time in New York where there is a very robust harm reduction community. And honestly, I think that we're like a third of the way there at that. But fortunately, politically, things are trending towards really approaching this from a more public health approach. Of course, there's there's law enforcement efforts, as there always will. We have a war on drugs. Police are going to continue to make arrests. But I find that there's a bit less of the harassment of sort of street users that then there there was at certain times during the course of Philadelphia's drug war during what we call there was a period in the 90s where there was an Operation Sunrise, which was sort of like kind of like what Operation Pressure Point was in New York. They went out and, and just arrested everybody for a one bag if you had it. That was rehashed again in the mid 2000s. There's a bit left of that where I think law enforcement is beginning to say that they're beginning to realize they're going to also be behind the curve and they're going to be on the wrong side of history if they don't 
get on board. But I'd say that the best news here is that we have two DA candidates, one of whom will win, who believe that supervised injection is a, is a viable policy platform to get behind. And, and that's certainly encouraging. And those injection facilities have received a lot of attention around the country and many places there. There's at least proposals to start opening them. How do users, because I know in the case of, say, methadone, but they don't like having to go to this location. It's outside of their home. You have to go to this mm-hmm. place with other people. And some people don't like that restriction of freedom. How do users tend to respond? Well, I mean, the only one that, that in North America now that's operational, I believe, is in Vancouver, and that's Insight. And um, I know that, that they are very well received among users in the city. People let, you know, line up to, to gain access. You know, that, that would depend upon so many things. I mean, Philadelphia is a very uh, residentially segregated city in the sense that um, people tend to stay in certain areas. So I, I suppose from speaking to users on the street, you know, it's something that sounds like a, a, a good thing. They would use it. Whether or not they would if they were, you know, not close enough to it, if they would take the time to travel, I think is questionable. I mean, ideally, I think for something like that to work in a, in a city like Philadelphia, where you have a large geography, where many, many different places where people use, you would want to have either some sort of mobile SIFs in addition to like an established permanent SIF or pop-up SIFs that would allow people to, to use safely there. Because yeah, you raise, you raise a good point. As long as, as long as we have a strict prohibitionist approach, right, to, to use and to the use and sale of, of um, narcotics, there is going to be, you know, an impetus for users to get off as quickly as they can. I mean, drug users just don't have the leisure to often, you know, travel long uh, distances to even get treatment or and, and we also in Philadelphia use and heroin selling happens in very close proximity. So there's always the potential for police presence at any given time in any given place. So in order for safe injection to be effective, I think there would definitely have to be buy-in from the police department and buy-in from law enforcement that sort of made it possible for the best circumstances to arise for users to use these facilities and consume at these facilities. I heard some mention, and I'm not sure if it's widespread or even necessarily the truth of it, but there being sort of user set up facilities to help each other in the absence of more formal injection facilities. Do those exist anywhere in Philadelphia among user communities, or is there really not much harm reduction provided in the sense of people have naloxone available in case, you know, and everybody's gathered together. So you're always around mm-hmm. people and that's inherently safer. Do those areas exist? Right. So, well, not in not in a formal sense. I know that there was a paper recently put out by a researcher named Alex Kral and and, uh, and his associate. They did a study of, a, of an, an underground supervised injection facility in an unnamed city that was formally established. It had a budget, albeit a shoestring budget. It had a set number of people that was invitation only and word of mouth. There's nothing quite like that in Philadelphia yet, although it wouldn't be a bad idea. But there, uh, yes, there there are user, I call it like crowdsourced harm reduction in the sense that, um, you know, it sort of develops around, it develops organically around a group of users. We had a, a very famous or infamous, depending upon which side of the, um, the war, war on drugs you're on, uh, user camp here, El Campamento, which I'm sure you've read about or heard about. Yeah. And um, I spent quite a bit of time there before it was closed down ultimately this summer. 
And there had absolutely developed a sort of what, what I like to describe to people as like what a field hospital and a war is to a hospital. Um, you know, it, it wasn't ideal. It wasn't always sanitary, but it was for the purposes of harm reduction, it was effective. You know, there was a very limited number of overdoses, fatal overdoses, I should say, let me rephrase that, that happened at this site because there were users with naloxone always. There was a quote unquote doctor who provided injection service for a, a small fee. You know, there were also dynamics there, however, that, that made that possible. One was that there was a couple of dealer sets down there that had established, you know, and were selling. So it, there was a hierarchy that sort of kept order in a way. And it, and it was very orderly at times. I mean, it, it was pretty amazing to watch this, this organically um, evolve over time and, and see how users and dealers sort of police themselves in a way. Um, I've been spending time since then, since that crackdown, at a separate place, some minor small user camp, probably close to the same number of people at any given time, but it, it's much less organized because there's really no, there's no hierarchy there. But they, they do have, as long as there's naloxone available, people will use it. And um, so, yes, using in groups, is definitely something that has and does continue to happen in Philadelphia, and it's probably saving more lives than we know. And it would be really be interesting to to sort of get an insight into that. Again, it happens so much off the radar that people don't often report when they've used it. I just hear it, you know, word of mouth. So yeah, that's that's um, an interesting thing about the heroin culture is that users do tend to in, in certain in markets like Philadelphia. I can't speak for everywhere. You know, users do tend to cluster around certain areas. And with the introduction of Narcan, that's really been a game changer. So, you know, that was something that was unavailable just a few short years ago to, to people on the street. And it's really, really changed things quite a bit in the sense that people are taking care of each other when they overdose where, you know, and that would have been a fatality at some point. And the fact that people with a, an addiction care about naloxone, they care about, they would utilize these facilities if they were available for harm reduction purposes and even providing harm reduction to other people around them. It sort of perfectly goes against this idea that people who are addicted to drugs are just on a straight course towards death. And in reality, if you get them away to use in a safer manner and not risk their life, suddenly they're no longer dying. And, and I think, you know, that's why it's important to, as you noted, you know, focus on being a an overdose issue, not an opioid issue, because you could go your entire life using these drugs or, or even being addicted to, say, heroin, but you don't have to die. Mm -hmm. And even when somebody is addicted, they still, you know, you have option A and option B, and one is safer than the other, and they are equally accessible, then they go for the one that's Safer, and that becomes possible in a regular regulated market and is exceedingly difficult to provide that kind of, of market system when it's a black market. It's unfortunate when harm reduction does start to appear in some way, law enforcement seems to always make it worse. In this case of, I'm assuming it was not beneficial to close down that camp. No, in, in fact, the, the community has already sort of been 
raising a bit of hell about how it just made the problem worse. Yeah. And, and you know, I mean, that was a complicated thing, you know, I mean, we, we focus on law enforcement. Your average beat cop is generally not that interested in the politics of the war on drugs. I mean, these are decisions that are made, you know, in this case, at a city level. And, and it was private property, this particular location. It was, it was, it's owned by Conrail. You know, it was, it was really media pressure that kind of Dr. Oz came and did a big thing down there. And it, suddenly everybody said, you know, we need to close this down. And I mean, it's kind of like, I mean, the war on drugs, in my mind, has been this like four decade experiment in the amazing viability of, of the free market system. And, and, you know, like we've used humans as, the, as sort of the guinea pigs in that experiment. And like you said, um, people will, like any guinea pig in any experiment, will react to certain pressure points and certain challenges or obstacles placed in their way. You know, you mentioned Narcan and and like it going against sort of the idea that drug users are a certain type of person. I mean, you can make a drug user that type of person. You can do that by, okay, for instance, when I mentioned some of these operations to sort of crack down really hard in the past, the net effect of that was it made it more dangerous for drug users for a number of reasons, one of which was a lot of people no longer were felt safe going to the drug spot to cop, so they would wait near the train station and rob somebody that had just gone to cop themselves, right? So that is an example of that did not happen organically. That is not something that this person would prefer to do. It was a reaction to a certain policy platform, you know, and, and yes, with the introduction of Narcan, wow, people are saving each other. You know, like if we withheld that and decided that like we were not going to let any Narcan on the street anymore for whatever reason, you know, it might, it would go back to the days of somebody falls out and you, you know, you've got a couple people rifling through their pockets. Drug users are not innately amoral. In fact, some of the, the brightest and most human people I've, I've ever met and spoken to, um, have been here on the streets of Kensington addicted to heroin. But you can make them that way. And and the war on drugs has done a lot to produce that image of what we think of as the depraved drug use. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, if you're forcing people into crime or you're giving them a criminal record and you're taking them away from whatever stability they have found in their lives by putting them in jail or taking them away from their family, and not to mention these drugs are riskier acutely, but then maintaining a habit for any substance in an illicit market just tends to create a lifestyle that is more problematic than the drug exactly. itself and the seeking money and then seeking the drugs and spending hours a day in that process is is worse than whatever a, a use of heroin is going to do to you. And then these people can't get any step forward in their lives because they are constantly facing essentially a, a rejection by the system and also a rejection by basically everybody who doesn't use the drugs that they use. And, you know, in cases like the camp there that was shut down, it seems like one of those cases where the black market exists and people tend to not see it and be aware of what's happening relatively close to their community and suddenly it's revealed to them and then there's complaints but they don't realize the people who are making the complaints that whatever they're seeing was actually the best that this group of people could do i mean like you were saying there was some level of stability and some level of harm reduction in that community so it may not look good but they don't realize that if you rip that away what had been created it's going to people will disperse and it will be more dangerous for the users and maybe more dangerous for society 
Mm-hmm. So there's there's never the second thinking about don't go with your first judgment of a person or the place that they're at, because then you have these overreactions where, you know, it has to go, even though people are you know making it clear that this place serves a benefit. If there's going to be a black market, you would rather this kind of place exist. Right. Yeah. And, and, and it's hard to get that point across sometimes to sort of dedicated drug warriors that, for instance, there's a real there's a real initiative now among federal law enforcement to target the dark web. And I was having a conversation with a, a federal law enforcement officer the other day about it. He was talking about the complexity around it and, and how it's really been kind of a tough thing for them to come up to speed on. And, um, you know, I, I said, well, would you rather if your kid was buying ecstasy, would you rather them buy it from the guy online that's got a thousand positive reviews and his stuff has been tested and known to be pure or or somebody sitting next to him at the bar one day that he doesn't know from Adam, right? It's hard to get that point across that you just made to people that see drug use or drug abuse in and of itself a moral problem, so to speak. So, you know, when we like, that's why I don't like to use the term opioid epidemic, because I don't personally have a problem with somebody using opioids. It's not a moral issue to me. You know, I have a problem with them dying needlessly from them. So, you know, you make a, a very good point. People have adapted the best way that they know how. And it's really difficult when you're uh, when you're constantly on the run. You know, things have improved, though, and, and harm reduction has gone a long way towards that. And that's why this is like sort of a progressive trend in a positive direction. I mean, 20 years ago, people were using their syringes until the numbers were off of them, Right. Nowadays, it's actually become, you know how, like, I don't know how old you are. When I was a kid, nobody wore a seatbelt. Like, it wasn't even, and suddenly there was this big campaign to have people wear seatbelts. And now, like, you kind of get a funny look if you sit in somebody's car and you don't put your seatbelt on, right? Well, that's kind of like, over time, people have become, it's almost frowned upon to not have, you know, new new syringes because they're available. We've made them available. People use, they use puddle water to shoot up. Nobody really wants to do that. If you give them the tools and or you don't make it hard for them to provide self-care to themselves, people will survive and thrive. I mean, particularly with, with the opioids, as, as pernicious as they may be, people will show up to work and, and function as opioid addicts. And, and many of them do um, for a long time. And, and that doesn't mean that whatever spiritual or psychological impact it's having on an individual won't make them pursue some sort of treatment at some point. But it, it does not have to be a deadly endeavor, let's say, or, or, or even one that, that deprives one of nutrition or, or the simple qualities of life that we all enjoy. I mean, that is, a, that is an artificial aspect of addiction that I believe has been imposed through this long process of, uh, of prohibition. There's a tendency to put so much power into the drug. You, you hear people talk about, say, opioids or in some places methamphetamine, and it's sort of attaching so much strength to this inanimate object saying, you know, the drugs are invading our community and we have to fight back. And it, if you view it in that way and view drugs merely existing as an inherent problem, and a lot of people surprisingly do, even though drugs have been around for millennia, somehow people have not gotten the message that they're they're not inherently these negative things. They could be beneficial or neutral. It doesn't, it's not always negative. But if you take that approach and it's, we don't want these things in our community, we have to get rid of them at any 
cost, then you're not going to provide necessarily harm reduction for users because you don't have much sympathy for them. They're engaging in the forbidden kind of activity. And on the side for sellers, could be even worse. I mean, a lot of people don't have as much sympathy for people selling drugs, but then you see what the sentences can be for that compared to just possessing drugs. Yet these people may have still only committed a drug offense, Mm -hmm. and there's very little sympathy for all the people involved because you're just morally branded as a, a negative, deviant person by even being involved in drugs. So all the sympathy from the community goes out the window. And I can only imagine how that feels if you're somebody who does have an addiction and it has had a negative impact on their life. And then you're also viewed as being morally corrupt. You know, give me a break. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is not a society I even want to really be a part of at this point, because look at how they're treating me or it just leads to hopelessness. And that's not going to help anything. Well, and look, and imagine what it would have must have been like for people that for a number of years or, you know, were part of the community going to who they thought was their doctor. And suddenly one day their pain clinic is shut down and all of a sudden they're like the focus of a criminal investigation. And, and, and now, or, you know, I mean, suddenly they go from being a patient to being an addict by default, right? And then, you know, it's only a process before you adopt that self-labeling and, and you become what society has imposed on you to be, you know? So, so there are people that that's why when I hear uh, law enforcement officers or, or um, state attorneys general here in Pennsylvania, for instance, talk about, you know, we're going to go after these doctors with a vengeance and stuff. It just seems so impractical to me that, you, you know, that you would take somebody that even if they are abusing and addicted to their pain pills and sort of like criminalize them and turn them into a population that now becomes problematic. You know, if we're talking about simple public health and quality of life and community well-being, that is certainly not a good policy platform to pursue in in my mind. And yet, like I said, for people that are sort of dedicated on the supply side intervention as being, you know, the dominant prong of addiction policy, it's really still a hard sell. Um, And that's proof. The proof is right there in this same rhetoric around diversion. Whatever harm somebody was doing to themselves by taking a prescribed drug that was always going to be the same when they got it and they filled it in a legitimate place of business and were able to use it on their own time and leisure legally, whatever harm they were doing is, is infinitely more when you suddenly criminalize them. It's uh, it's, it's something I've been saying for years and uh, it, it, hasn't, it hasn't trickled down as far as I would like it to, but I think more people are starting to live. Well, it seems so many of these conversations are coming as though getting rid of drugs is actually an option. So if you are ever doing something that is pro-harm reduction, you're therefore standing up for drug use as though drug use is not taking place anyways. Mm-hmm. I'm familiar with this in a few different markets, but say in MDMA, people complain about pill testing at events as though it will encourage the use and yet the stats bear out that one the use was going to take place anyways if the testing was not there if we implement the testing when we tell people that this is something you really don't want to take they often in the vast majority of cases don't take the drug and that means they just lost their money and maybe lost their evening because that was going to be their time we're talking about drug users and yet they're making rational choices about their health when given the ability to do so and that seems almost impossible for a lot of people in society to imagine the idea that these are not just sort of zombies driven by 
by their their addiction and their addiction is controlling everything they do, but rather that no, they actually do care about in many cases their physical well-being. They would prefer to have a family and would prefer to have a home and would prefer to have a job. And yet they're sort of branded as such and, and that's taken away as even an option because there's going to be no support to get them out. But it seems like this core thing of not being able to accept that drugs are here and we have to create policies based around that fact. I, I swear a large portion of politicians and maybe law enforcement and general society are in some sort of other dimension in the way that they think about this as though we're only a, a matter of pieces of legislation away from getting rid of the drug problem. And it'll never happen. I mean, even if you have a policy like the Philippines, the Philippines is not void of drugs under this system. And we would never feel that bad about drug users as to do that to them, hopefully here. So you're not even going to go down that path. And it's not going to work anyways. But people just can't get themselves to accept, you know, no matter what the facts tell them, they can't get themselves to accept, hey, maybe people can use a drug. Well, I mean, and, that, and that's the irony of America's war on drugs. You know, we're, we're a country that, well, you know, drugs are a, a commodity in, in the sense that there are, there are obviously crimes that are problematic, like, you know, murder and rape and robbery that, that need to be criminal offenses. Drugs are a commodity that people use. It's a market-based crime that solely exists because of prohibition. And, and we live in a country that reveres capitalism and, and free marketism almost to the level of a religion in a way. And yet we can't seem to wrap our heads around the fact that as long as there is a market, there will be a, a, that market will be filled. I mean, that's the law. That's the law of capitalism. That's the law that we revere in every other place, you know, in our policy language, you know. And you're right. And fentanyl is a great example of that. I mean, you know, fentanyl was an innovation. It was a market innovation. It was entrepreneurial. And it was it was obviously uh, if left in the hands of amateurs in a black market setting, of course, it's going to be it's going to be what, what we've seen. You know, the overdose epidemic is, is a direct result of a market based innovation in a simple response to a cost benefit analysis, really. You know, and that's that's economics. And, and that's the fact that in America, we still, after all this time, think that there's a way that we're going to stop that. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to say to the DEA or federal law enforcement, you know, like, like, what is your long game on this? You know, I mean, maybe it's just like sort of an endless war that they think, you know, we're well, we're just going to keep fighting it and then they'll keep coming back and kind of maybe there's just an acceptance that it's going to have to be ongoing. But to, But to think that there's anything you could do to absolutely eradicate drug use. I mean, you take something like cigarettes, you know, which were a lot people smoked indoor. When I was growing up, it was it was com completely common to just like, you know, light up in somebody's house. I mean, people would come to visit my parents. You know, nobody would do that today. And cigarettes are still legal. It's like if you apply certain educational measures and there's this. So you talked about the enabling myth of, of like harm reduction. There's also this sort of myth that under any system other than prohibition, more people will just use, right? And and that has not been proven out in any way, shape, or form that we that without prohibition we would have just a society of crackheads. And and cigarettes are a great example of that. I mean, people smoke less than they did through nothing other than than regulatory measures and and educational measures. People will respond to that in a way that will you know it, it, over time be effective. You're not you're not just going to have suddenly this rush to 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 become 
a heroin user if suddenly you make uh, heroin decriminalized. I just I think that's the mythology that's been created to perpetrate continuing this type of uh, blunt force effort to eradicate it. And much more important than the laws surrounding a drug in terms of controlling or affecting the rate of use, it seems to be, at least to me, that it's more likely that the biggest factor is what your community thinks about a drug. And in the case of, say, you know, cannabis, it actually still is treated to this day in some areas as a legitimate Schedule One substance. And you really can, in many places, it's, it's sort of just people look the other way, um, even if it's not legal. But in other places, it actually is punitive. But it's not stopping use because everybody knows that their friends are using, they have family members that do, people in the society use. And so if the, the drug has a positive reputation, then people will navigate towards it regardless of laws. But on the flip side, if you were to find a substance that we really as a society did not want people to use because it was so dangerous, you know, it was uh, the safety ratio of what dose is effective versus what dose will kill you. And most drugs are five, six, seven. So you have a lot of room to play. But hey, there's this new substance that's it's only 10% more of the dose. And that's what will kill you. Well, we really don't want people going for that. And if you have proper education and tell people why they would want to avoid, I find it hard to believe they wouldn't be convinced to avoid such a drug even now, even when the harms are not as great as people claim, say for methamphetamine, or for heroin, the social stigma is really what's driving the lack of use. I mean, you can order any of these drugs online if you really wanted to, especially nowadays, yet people still choose not to. So yeah, this idea that somehow everybody switches to heroin when you legalize or decriminalize is just not backed up. And there's certain cases, and some people really have made this point, I think, including Carl Hart at Columbia, that a mere increase in drug use is not necessarily an issue either. Exactly. Because you have to look at, you know, there's more going on, is the use actually problematic? And and there's just no ability for people to think, oh, there are problematic and non-problematic drug users. And yet we have this perfect model of alcohol that everybody accepts. Everybody accepts that their way of using alcohol is typically not problematic, but everybody can identify somebody who has an alcohol addiction and they're doing something totally different, but it's the same drug. So comes down to the person, you know, that viewpoint has not been afforded to any other substance so far. The idea that you could have a, a purely just recreational cocaine user who every couple of weeks is using cocaine is just blows people's minds. Well, I, th I think it's been estimated, the Global Commission on, and yeah, I'm forgetting the name, one of these big groups has estimated that, um, I think Richard Branson is a member of it, the, the names escape me, that, you know, like the estimates are that about only 10% of cocaine users are, are actually like addicts. I mean, most people do recreationally use, you know, I mean, and, and that is, um, you're right. It's, it's a, it's a hyper-focus on the substance itself and, and substances have different effects on people. There's a, there's a biology around addiction that often gets overlooked in the sense, not everybody that takes a Percocet is going to like it or is, is, is going to, Look, my wife could take, you know, like it, to sleep in Ativan or something and it'll knock her out for the whole next day. You know, like I could take one, fall asleep and feel fine the next morning. Like people's physical reactions are going to be different to substances and people are going to avoid things that don't like. I, I guess I don't know if I'm getting my point across. I guess what I'm trying to say is like the idea that every substance is going to have the same level of 
that, that say heroin or, or, or um, you know, cocaine is going to have the same reaction on anyone that tries it. The one hit and you're hooked thing is a myth. And yeah, I think, you know, a lot of, there's been a lot of harm perpetuated. I mean, the disease model of addiction, while it helps remove a lot of the stigma that might have surrounded something like alcoholism in the past, kind of like created this one size fits all idea of what addiction looks like and how it should be responded to. And I make that point all the time. Um, there's a, there's a lot of people that abuse substances that are not at even, even alcohol. There are problem drinkers. There are people that drink and do stupid things when they drink and probably shouldn't drink to excess, but they are not alcoholics, right? But but we've sort of labeled anything problematic that arises from the use of a substance as a sign of a disease. And once you have a disease, now a person has become labeled as somebody that needs to be cared for in a certain way. Like we need to, you need AA meetings, you need this. And, and it's kind of like created this, this idea that there's only like non-use and addiction, right? Or like what you said about alcohol, like, you know, like there's various uh, ways that people use alcohol and along the spectrum from like complete abstinence to full-blown alcoholism, there's a lot of in-betweens. And there are some people that, that, that can manage their use, even when it becomes problematic. And I think we're starting to see a little bit more um, dialogue around that, you know, with uh, some of the, the, the addiction doctors, um, Mark Willenbring uh, comes to mind. Some of the, the real innovative addiction uh, people in addiction medicine that are starting to look at the look at the genetics and the neurobiology of youth, Carl Hart, people like that, that have demonstrated that sort of one size fits all idea uh, about use and addiction is simplistic and flawed. Uh, but yeah, we look at treatment like it's like this monolithic. It's like, is more money for treatment good? Well, I, my answer to that would be it depends on what the treatment is, right? You know, we've sort of, we've, the addiction field has, you know, and, and there's, there's big money now, especially, you know, private equity is getting into uh, the addiction business, uh, like it, at a, a large clip. I mean, there's a lot of money flowing into it. I mean, it, it's a big industry and it, it serves itself well. It, and it's also been very largely unregulated for a long time uh, in terms of how they market themselves to consumers, you know, treatment facilities and the uh, quality of care that you're going to get. Um, and we've sort of sold this this model of addiction treatment of, you know, I like to use the, the phrase from NA and AA meetings where mostly in NA, I think they say, keep coming back. It works if you work it, right? I mean, if this was a disease, if you went to a cancer doctor that told you that, you know, like that's not, if you're giving people two different messages, one that you have a disease and the other that you, you have to work it, like you have to, it, it, the failure is on you if you don't get it kind of thing, right? But that tells me that we're, you know, that there's something wrong with the treatment model, you know? And um, yeah, I mean, that, that sort of mentality around um, that one size fits all, I mean, you know, you see it. The idea that an alcoholic will also have a problem with marijuana or, or like that sort of like universal addiction, like, you know, you, you're an addict, you can't touch anything or you'll you'll be on a 10 day run that has served, I think, the addiction treatment market probably very well. But fortunately, at least where it comes to opioids, there's been more education around the inefficacy of that kind of model for particularly for opioid addiction, which does have some chemical components to it where medication assisted treatment comes into play. And, um, you know, that, that there were generations of, of heroin addicts that um, were sent for detox and then put right out on the street and, and without proper therapeutic intervention, you know, and, and um, so 
that is a big part of it. The way we view addiction in society has been largely informed by a model developed by middle-aged white male alcoholics in the 30s, you know, and it hasn't really changed a lot. And uh, that's certainly part of the process because people will ultimately seek help if the right help is there. Um, And some won't. If you, you know, if you give, if there were people in prior to the Harrison Act that received morphine from their doctors and probably stayed on it their whole lives, but we've made it, you know, more harmful and, and we created a system that made it more difficult for certain marginalized populations to, to access quality treatment. You know, you brought up a, a good point where you talked about you will sort of seek out things that are safer. And, and that is based on, you know, socioeconomic dynamics as well. I mean, if you look at some of the drug forums online where you can tell you there's more educated users of a different sort of socioeconomic class, they're able to share information about like what fentanyl strains they've used. I mean, there's a whole population of drug users that are sort of under the radar that are these sort of like, I call them like the drug nerds, you know, I mean, like they know which analogs to try and which, you know, I mean, these are people that have like, you know, they have social capital and educational capital and things that allow them to be more responsible in what they're using. Marginalized populations that, that are from street backgrounds and, you know, we're in, in forced to use street heroin in a place like Philadelphia, you know, that's, that's a, they don't have that same, that same level of that same ability to uh, have the leisure to use responsibly. Yeah. I mean, if you have bad drug education in the best school district of California, you can only imagine what it's going to be in, in the worst part of Chicago. I mean, you have people who are maybe at a higher risk of using drugs and people can kind of teach themselves in many ways using resources like you were referring to with these people on forums and, and Reddit. And it's a totally different kind of community than your stereotypical drug users. But the benefit is that if you have information, then you know the dose and you know how, you know, don't mix it with X, Y, and Z. And suddenly you're way less likely to die. And that's the kind of stuff that should be part of a curriculum for people to receive in high school or before. And we're totally avoiding that because of this concern, just like with sex ed in many places, that because it's a moral issue for so many people, you can't once it's a moral issue, it doesn't matter that there's practical benefits to the education. People feel it's fundamentally wrong to, in their eyes, facilitate teenage sex or facilitate teenage drug use, even if it comes with all these benefits. And it also doesn't necessarily raise use because we have all of this evidence from either different school districts or different countries. And for the most part, whether it's drugs or especially the data for sex ed, is that going in a more liberal direction does not increase the rate at which people are engaging in the activity. It it just reduces the harm. And that's the only effect. But I mean, people cannot bring themselves to, you know, they're so opposed to drugs, they can't do anything that would be sort of harm reduction based. It just feels so wrong to them. You know, it's against their character to be sympathetic with the drug users. It's beneath them or something. And that creates a lot of problems. And I think it's a really widespread position. And and then you have people who go even further. I'm sure you've probably encountered these people at some point who are the especially anti-drug people who are even opposed to naloxone or even they sort of suggest drug users are entirely worthless. And that's a fair number of people in different communities. And I don't even know how 
you would go about trying to shift these societal perspectives. I don't know if you have any thoughts, but they seem so ingrained. We've had decades now where drug users are a menace in the society, and getting that to shift at all is seems quite difficult. Well, I mean, a couple points on that. I mean, one, one way to start would be like, let's stop forcing them to be a menace to society. <laughs> like, let's get them into supervised injection facilities and off of the playgrounds, you know, and, and, and like, so there's that aspect of it. But I, I would say that more people, I think, because of this sort of overdose epidemic that we've been experiencing, and certainly with the rise in opioid use due to prescriptions, I think more people know somebody than that had a problem with drugs or alcohol or, you know, I mean, part of ending the stigma is sort of like acknowledging that you, you had a family member or, uh, you know, that was, that had the problem. I mean, it, it's kind of like, in a way we've seen it happen around gay rights, you know, where, where like people have started to, I think people in places of America where it was left likely to see this in the past started coming out and saying like, oh yeah, my, my brother or my daughter is homosexual, you know? And, and like, I think that part of the first step is to sort of come out of the shadows. We, we need to start talking about this as it affects all different strata of society. There is no stereotypical user. And, you know, I think that there are more people that have encountered that close to them, maybe, than there may have been prior to the, the sort of influx of, of some of the prescription pills that legitimately, you know, people that probably didn't need them got, got hooked on. And so, yeah, I mean, there will always be a, a, a minority of, of radicals that will not be happy with any policy. You know, I mean, the best society's role is to sort of dilute that with proper policy approaches that sort of help us as a whole. And so I think that Tides are shifting a bit, you know, and, and I think that's a good thing. Um, certainly in certain cities, it is. I don't know what it's like um, in more rural places in terms. I imagine it's still some very, like, sort of brute force type law enforcement in, 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 in different counties. I know there are, you know, outside of Philadelphia, but in, in urban centers, fortunately, we're trending towards looking at this with more of a public health eye. I mean, you know, when you hear even law enforcement getting behind things like methadone, you know, that, that was kind of unheard of at, at one point in time, you know, I mean, so, but it'll take some time. I mean, the, the supervised injection facility issue, I think will will play a lot of that out. You know, people are, I, I think we're going to see this become more of a trend across the U.S. in urban areas. And, and I think you're going to see some of that community backlash of, of like that, not in my backyard type stuff. I mean, and I think the message that I would have for that segment of the population is that it's, it's already in your backyard. So let's contain it and make it less problematic. There's this, what I was saying before, is is just this fantasy land of if you if you don't engage with the problem, then somehow the problem goes away until your teenage son is found using cannabis or something and your entire world falls apart because we were strict and then somehow it still got in and guess what? It doesn't work like that. You can't get rid of these drugs from the society and they're going to affect people you don't necessarily anticipate them affecting. And they're going to be, and this is one thing that's gotten a lot of attention in this so-called epidemic is that the demographics in some places have shifted so that there's a greater impact on demographics that are viewed differently by society, or you just have income status and, and where these people live and having drugs affecting them suddenly gets people sort of thinking about it more, just as, you know, if you're in the inner city, you can't escape 
the existence of drugs. And so in some cases, that seems to lead to a willingness to actually pursue harm reduction or injection facilities versus in rural areas where you may not be around drugs, at least to your knowledge, on any regular basis. So it seems so foreign that you would just want to keep the stiffest penalties in to keep it out. But ultimately, it's a sort of a fantasy land that these people are living in. You know, they just have to stick their heads in the sand and not think about drugs or not think about, in the case of sex ed sex, and the issue goes away. There was one thing that we've kind of touched on a few times, which is prescribing with opioids. And I think there's a lot of debate about how the prescribing practices directly connect to the current overdose issue in terms of how many people are being prescribed these drugs and then turning to illicit opioids and specifically if they were prescribed the drug under totally legitimate circumstances. So there's obviously people can gain access through the medical system, but that doesn't mean that they actually had a, I mean, they were going into it with that intention. So it's hard to figure out what is the rate of give 100 people oxycodone, how many people will turn to an oxycodone addiction and then to heroin. Do you have any, not necessarily you know, hard stats, but any kind of feeling about how many current heroin users got there because of they messed up their back or messed up their body somehow and had pain meds? I mean, in a place like Philadelphia, it's mixed. Uh, certainly, I, I do encounter people that were introduced that way, and perhaps more so in the past. Whereas, you know, I mean, we've, like I said, there's been a thriving heroin market here. I mean, people and and white people have, have used heroin for a long time here. It has not just become a white issue and they've used it like organically from just going straight to illicit drugs. I'll use this as a sidebar real quickly on the net effect of prohibition in general is that it creates a system where you have to you have to communicate and deal with criminals to acquire a substance. So you take maybe let's say you were a pot user, right? You're now dealing with a criminal element. And that makes it much more likely that you're going to come in contact with cocaine or some other drug, right? So, so that's what my little sidebar, like I could go on about that. I think like, I think a lot of what we call like when people say marijuana is a gateway drug, I say no, marijuana prohibition is the gateway drug because if you, when marijuana was made criminal, you're going to suddenly be around criminals to get it. And criminalizing something puts you among an element of people that are not necessarily operating in, you know, legitimate ways and caring about your well-being. So we're, but back to your, your question, um, yes, I mean, it, it, there is definitely, you know, it, it would be foolish to, to ignore like a connection between this sort of formulation of OxyContin and whatever economic forces that led more people into treatment for different disabilities. I mean, I think it's complex. I think certain places that were economically depressed, I think there was probably more of, I mean, I think there's more of more forces driving people to seek treatment for things that will allow them to acquire disability, you know, payments. There were there, there, a lot of the economy, you know, in certain sectors of certain places in America, there's a lot of ramifications on the way people are going to behave. So, um, I'm trying to get to your point about how many, like, I know that chronic pain patients, where a lot of the focus has been when we talk about the um, opioid problem, I think that there are very few of them that would organically on their own go to an illicit market. I think the crackdown on pain meds and the crackdown on pill mills, quote unquote pill mills, led a lot of people, some that I have interviewed, to seek out replacements because they were improperly cut off from the, that drugs that they were on. 
that may or may not have been benefiting them. Some people, it certainly, there's this myth that opioids don't work for long-term pain. I mean, they, there's, they're putting out paper after paper. I, I, you got to go out there and talk to people. There are people that cannot function because of certain illnesses without their opioids. They, they, they can work for a chronic pain patient. But the problem, I think, where we saw a lot of diversion, you know, like the, just according to sources I've spoken to in, in the medical field, was more on the acute care side and, and diversion from like people just getting too many on for acute care issues like post-op and dental and things like that. And there just being a lot of pills out there. Uh, I don't think the chronic pain patient is your standard model of somebody that's, that's just going to become an addict until you put them in a position where they need to be. Now, some of them, some of them certainly abuse their drugs. But again, it comes back to like the harm reduction thing. I mean, is that the proper approach to somebody that's abusing a legitimate substance to suddenly cut them off and leave them with no other option than to go and abuse adulterated substance of unknown origin? So, like I said before, my, my problem is not necessarily with, with opioid use, it's with death from it. How do you approach big pharma? You know, like, I mean, again, that's an issue of, of capitalism. I mean, whatever regulatory issues were lacking in the way certain drugs were marketed, if a company falsely marketed their product, I certainly would support going after that company and suing them like any company. But in terms of there's, there's also a responsibility on doctors and patients to be informed. And, you know, doctors, if they were prescribing substances to people without really knowing what they were or doing their due diligence, that's problematic. But that is, that's for the medical industry to work out. It's not for law enforcement to work out. You know, that, that is a, that's an issue of regulation, let's just say. Same thing with pharmaceuticals. You know, it's, re- it's a regulatory issue. It's not a law enforcement issue. And, and once we made it a law enforcement issue, it led to a series of events that clearly made opioid use more dangerous for the people that use it. There's this important point that you made that even if you have somebody who is prescribed an opioid for pain, and th- then there's an indication that they may be using a larger amount for, say, emotional pain or something like that. So now it's moved beyond sort of the normal medical boundaries and that's viewed as wrong and this person has to be cut off but when you start to actually figure out how much harm this person is encountering it's not necessarily dangerous for the person to be using using partly to treat sort of psychological things versus just treating their pain and there's sort of this desire to scrutinize everybody who is receiving pain meds and are you using this for anything more than just your pain? And if you are, then that's an issue. And not to mention that this has sometimes been evaluated just purely looking at no factor other than the amount of prescribing. But there are cases where people for totally legitimate reasons have very high doses of opioids. Maybe they shouldn't. Maybe the doctor shouldn't have gotten them to that level. But being at that level does not mean they have some kind of addiction. Right, of course. And even further, even if they had an addiction, this is the main thing that people have really tried to point out is that if this person is addicted, taking away their prescription is not going to get rid of that. So where does that addiction go from a standardized oxycodone to who knows what in the heroin market and who could ever view that as positive is uh, it's beyond me. 
But people also, you know, even some doctors, I think, have expressed concerns in this area, perhaps legitimate ones, where they don't want to be feeding an addiction. So it does become a complicated thing if they feel like their continued prescribing is just not for pain, but it's for really that they're using it in a different way. I can see why there are, a doctor would not want to do that, but it's a matter of taking that second step and thinking about, well, what's the end effect of this? And and it's probably negative. Well, right. And that's a relatively unexplored region of opioid use that um, I think it's not completely unexplored, but it, it, you know, opioids do have an, an antidepressant effect. I mean, there are people that will be medicating themselves for a variety of reasons, both physical and emotional. And again, it comes back to sort of moralizing somebody else's quality of life. Now, I trend libertarian. So, I mean, if you want to make an argument that like the taxpayers shouldn't be paying for this treatment or that treatment, I mean, like there are ways to sort of, I believe that people need to be responsible for themselves to a certain extent. You know, I mean, if, if they have the means to do so and if it was like an issue of like, OK, well, there's all these people that are getting treatments that are unnecessary and, and like we're paying for them. Well, let's find a way to deal with that. But just to moralize somebody's quality of life when it doesn't affect you, you know, and think like, so what? But I would say, so what if they were taking an extra one every night for their emotional pain, right? Like, is that the worst thing in the world? And if it replaced a couple drinks of alcohol, it could be good. Sounds radical, right? But it's like, it's not. I just don't really, I don't have an invested stake in keeping somebody from taking an extra pill every night if, it, if it's making them feel comfortable. I mean, if they have a responsibility to you know, and with their doctor. And, and that's where we really disrupted the doctor-patient relationship, I think, with a lot of this, this strong regulatory approach to, like, pain management. People used to have family physicians that they knew and that knew them and they trusted. Suddenly, you know, we started diverting people into these, like, specialized pain clinics where doctors were just sort of seeing them once a month and writing them their script. Somebody, you know, they probably had lots of patients. You don't have a really good relationship with them. You haven't built trust. And like, what patient is going to go into that doctor knowing what's at stake and like, and say to them, you know, like, hey, so I'm taking a little bit more because of this or, you know, I mean, created a system of distrust. And we broke down that sort of revered relationship and a special relationship between a physician and their patient that was individualized and, and that you could have a, a conscientious discussion with your doctor about something that you were doing or something that concerned you and they would treat you with compassion and sort of help you without harming you kind of thing. But we sort of regulated pain into like this specialized segment of the market and people didn't have that relationship anymore. So yeah, I mean, I think there is, I support doctor education. I think doctors should be educated about this stuff. If there was a doctor, if there was a doctor out there that was prescribing oxycodone under the uh, belief that it was not potentially dependency creating, like, they should be, they should be probably not be a doctor. I mean, I learned that Percocet were addictive, you know, like when I was a teenager, I mean, like that's just common knowledge. Like I, this idea that somehow big pharma sold this bill of like goods onto these supposedly like well-educated doctors and all these doctors were just like, I had no idea that that could be, you know, you could get a dependency from that. You know, there is, there is certainly malpractice out there. I mean, that's a complicated issue too, is the, it's one of the things that frustrates me in talking to people about this is the 
constant confusion between dependence and addiction. And it's a very important distinction. And I think probably the majority of the media that I see gets it wrong. I mean, addiction is, this is the basis for people will say, say SSRIs are addictive because they have withdrawal, but that's not what an addiction is. So we're, we're kind of messing up these terms as well. Then we use terms like dependence potential, but that could be referring to either the ability to produce tolerance and withdrawal, or you could actually develop a psychological dependence on it, meaning it has some non-medical recreational quality to it. And so it's just these annoying terms. But one thing I wanted to respond to was bringing up the idea with there are a lot of people and the example I've used before, because I heard her say it on some program was Ann Coulter, who was saying that she would be sort of fine with drug decriminalization or legalization if she didn't have to pay for what went wrong with the drug users. And the thing that seems so silly in that conversation is although there are medical costs that would be associated with drug use, if we're really focused on, you know, what is the cost to society, it's not drugs. Oh, they would be infinitesimal compared to like with the war on drugs cost us, right? You know, I mean, if you think about it. But on, on top of that, the greatest cost to a medical system are chronic diseases like heart disease and neurodegeneration and cancer. And these things are arising often from lifestyle. And this is the, I mean, are we going to, this would be like saying treating all lifestyles that can lead to any societal negative we have to legislate against. If you go down that path, as we have with drugs, but the logical conclusion would be things like the highest sugar drink. And uh, but it, it just seems absurd because because we don't view food or something or, or a lack of exercise in the same way as drugs are this big scary thing and they come into your body and they destroy everything. But really, what's costing society a lot of money is is not drugs, and that's not to minimize. The risks associated with some drugs, especially, oddly enough, the ones that may have the greatest long-term risks are actually alcohol and tobacco when they're overused compared to, say, heroin. So that means in many of these cases, you're focused on the acute medical costs. That does not cost anything compared to treating somebody with heart disease. So it's just this, this weird thing where drugs are so bad, we couldn't put even a dollar into it because it's just this despicable part of society. Well, for, for one thing, the cost of, you know, the cost of a dose of methadone is like a dollar, you know, I mean, like it's tiny compared to the money we've put into trying to, that's it. That's an interesting thing for her to say. If you, my response to that would be like, well, I, you know, so what are your thoughts on the, you know, the trillions of dollars that have gone towards um, eradicating this issue, you know, um, but, uh, you know, like I said, there are arguments to be made on, on, and how care is delivered and, you know, who pays for it and all that stuff that are beyond my realm of sort of like looking at ex and exploring, you know, I, I just, I see the net effect of a war that has left large portions of, you know, my city and others like it, you know, devastated and have created disruption and death uh, needlessly. Um, whatever the solution may be, the one path that we've been on certainly is not is not working. And, you know, fortunately, I think this whole experience over the past couple of years has been sort of a double edged sword. You know, in some ways, it's enlightened people who were previously unenlightened to the needs for certain harm reduction interventions and also uh, medicated assisted treatment, which was sorely lacking. Uh, but on the other side, it's it all wrapped up in the same 
rhetoric as has always been. It's, it's like the crack we're revisiting in, in a way. And uh, that's, that's certainly troubling from my perspective. I know you're focused on Philadelphia, but do you have any, uh, even just personal opinions on where the federal government and the Trump administration is on this issue. I haven't followed all of what they're saying, but I get the sense that most likely there's not going to be many issues with, say, interfering with cannabis laws or something like that. But there is this rhetoric from some parts of the government that suggests we could in some way move down a more authoritarian crackdown path. Do you have any opinions on where the federal government is and doing anything good, doing anything bad? Yeah, Trump is sort of a wild card. Um, I mean, you know, He's, I, I think he's now in, in a, him and Sessions are not sort of the, having in the warm, fuzzy feelings they once had. So it, it's hard to even know how long Jeff Sessions will be around in that role. I think for the most part, I think that at the level of city level, like Philadelphia, you know, our DEA and our um, high intensity drug trafficking folks, I mean, that they're, they're kind of, it's just sort of business as usual. You know, there was talk of eliminating the um, Office of National Drug Control Policy. And, and you know, when Trump was first setting out his budget and he, he reined that back and sort of just funded it pretty much at the same level it has been. Um, he trumpeted sort of uh, adding more money to treatment, but a lot of that was legislated by Congress through the CARE Act. So, I mean, I honestly don't think we're going to see. I had some reserve, you know, I had a lot of reservations when Trump came into office about what this would look like. He wrapped a lot of his drug rhetoric into his anti-immigrant rhetoric. So I think that to the extent the the federal government at that level is going to exploit it, it will be on like that kind of border type issue, um, border enforcement, which was his pet project all through the campaign. But in terms of law enforcement at the at the level of the regional DEA offices and stuff like that, I mean, you know, they're, they're going about business as usual. Um, uh, It'll be interesting to see if what kind of the medical uh, issue is, the benefits issue is big. I mean, you know, with with the Trump care will be uh, devastating to a lot of people if the GOP passes, you know, their version of uh, this repeal and replace, that would certainly affect treatment. I think that would have more of a direct impact than necessarily his you know, his authoritarianism, which doesn't seem to be focused in that direction right now. But he's a wild card. That, that's subject to change at, at any moment. So the thing I want to end on, and we've probably already talked about some of the things that you would bring up, but even just to recap, what are the greatest misconceptions that you encounter with this opioid overdose crisis that keep coming up and you keep having to combat? Because I, I mean, there's probably a dozen, but you know, what are the biggest misconceptions about what is actually going on with opioids and heroin that people tend to have. Yeah, well, you brought up a good one, a good one with, you know, dependency versus addiction. That's a, a real common misconception that that even people who are relatively enlightened on this issue regularly mess up. And uh, and, I, and I have to sort of explain to them the difference. So, so that's big. And, and I would I would really impress upon people to look at this as an overdose crisis, you know, um, as a, a crisis of people dying needlessly rather than focus on the substance, as you pointed out. This is not about people largely use, at least in urban centers where fentanyl has has really infiltrated. And there's been a lot of, you know, also counterfeit pills that are adulterated with fentanyl. To that extent, we're not really dealing with a opioid crisis. We're dealing with people inadvertently taking the wrong opioid crisis. Um, and I think that that's something that I try to, you know, I try to emphasize. People don't want 
to die. The fentanyl issue here in Philadelphia was not a demand issue. People weren't out there demanding fentanyl. They were expecting to get heroin. It was supply side in, you know, a supply side imposition based on a lot of different market forces. I think that that is the biggest thing I would say is that the misconception that opioids particularly, since that's what we're focusing on here, are inherently deadly. They do not have to be. And if we give people the tools to use them appropriately, we can bring our, our opioid deaths down dramatically. Now, if you're the type of person that finds drug use immoral in, in, in and of itself, then you're probably against things like methadone. And, um, and you know, I'm not going to change your mind and I'm not going to try to, but I'm, I'm going to work hard to marginalize you, I guess, from the conversation because, you know, you're making people in my community less safe in the long run. And, and um, these are people that I see every day. So where can people find your journalism work and your social media? Well, I'm on Twitter quite regularly at CMRAF, and I write for the Daily Beast, the Crime Report, and nextcity.org. This is a great chat. We covered a lot more than I anticipated we would, but yeah, it was great having you on, and thanks for accepting the invitation. Cool, yeah. Thanks for having me, Seth. Mm-hmm.